Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You could even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to wings.robinhood.com. That's wings.robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not an investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, your twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. It's Sunday night in Detroit, and uh, it's a party time in Buffalo. Yeah, that was that was awful. I think uh, the Wings, that one got away from them probably about five minutes into the game uh, when, at that point, Evan Rodriguez had already scored twice his first two goals of the season, and uh, the Wings were left looking for answers at that point. Yeah, it's kind of funny because this was like the best second period the Red Wings have played in a long time. They only get one goal out of it, and then the third period begins, uh, and Buffalo gets a couple goals by defensemen, and the game is functionally over uh, that fast. As, I mean, it was 5-1 to one at that point. The Red Wings aren't scoring five goals on basically anybody. Um, but one of the weirder points about it, analytically, uh, the numbers say the Red Wings really dominated this game in possession and shot quality. Uh, my eyes told a much different story. Can you explain how that uh, might have come to be? I think a large reason why the numbers look that way, and when we're talking about the numbers here, speaking specifically of the numbers at 5-on-5 five five or, or really right. even strength, I think the first period was very disjointed with, again, multiple power play situations. Uh, I think the Sabres, if I remember correctly, had two or three power plays and I think Detroit had another one. So already you're talking about about half the period being played um, at a, a basically special teams level. And then for the most part, the first period was really low event. So there just wasn't a whole lot of shots happening at all. I think there was about five or six minutes left in the first period, and shots at that point I think were 6-5 Detroit. And so uh, by virtue of that first period being so such a low event at 5-on-5, uh, five and then the second period, Detroit kind of comes out and they dominate. They actually uh, outshoot Buffalo 16-3, to um, putting a number of those on goal. And so that's what really swung this game in terms of a discrepancy. And so, you know, games like this, you always have to be mindful. And that's why we do things called score score adjustments, where when a team like Buffalo gets so far ahead, 3-1, 4-1, 5-1, they're often sitting back. They're not pressing as much. They're really not generating chances. And so the other team naturally is going to... Uh, be pushing a little bit harder, and so you have to make an adjustment of those metrics. But even with that adjustment, Detroit still came out ahead with a 62% 5-on-5 uh, five five expected goals, 4% tonight. 
overall, I mean, you can't complain with the way they played at 5-on-5, five five, but again, like we've talked about, special teams was a, a huge problem for the Wings tonight. It is, and, you know, the power play, second, was it second straight game or second time in three games that they give up uh, just a really juicy opportunity off the power play. This time it's uh, Philip Sedina with an errant pass. Maybe worse, though, was the dive by Robbie Fabry to try and keep it in the zone. You get the hustle, you get the effort that he's going for there to try to keep that puck in up top. But um, it's interesting because the Red Wings, it's one of the, the few kind of tweaks the Red Wings have made to that power play uh, lately is, is they've put Robbie Fabry up top to kind of quarterback it. Um, that looks like the kind of play that happens when you're in the first few games of having a forward quarterback in your power play. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people got on Zadina for making that pass, and he got pressured and had to go from his forehand to his backhand and had to saucer it a little bit to get the puck over to Fabry. And, and the puck certainly wasn't in the wheelhouse, but Max, you're right. I think the more egregious play, honestly, is leaving your feet as the last man back uh, and actually hitting the ice in that situation to try and keep the puck in. Because at that point, if Fabry just abandons the play and, and, and lets that puck come out he's able to easily retrieve it sabers retreat nothing really happens there and so i think a little bit of it is growing pains because forwards typically aren't in that position where they are the last man back you may have seen a more experienced defenseman just skate just let that puck exit the zone and skate back out pick it up at center ice and and try and make another entry but yeah they give up their ninth shorthanded goal in the season that's now the most in the nhl allowed again they give up a couple of power play goals to to buffalo and they just they simply were not able to to contain Buffalo at special teams, and so that's why even though the five on play was five on five play was tilted their way, special teams is ultimately what did them in again. Yeah, it's a real problem. I mean, you watch the power play right now, and uh, it's just hard to find really any good things about it. I mean, there's talented players there. I think they've started to the one thing i can say i think they've started to use the bumper position a lot more effectively and i think a lot of that has been about philip sedina being uh pretty inclined to go there and, and use that for giving goes which may be the one positive sign but man it's not a team that looks confident in any zone like they don't look confident going through the neutral zone certainly trying to enter they don't look confident trying to break it out of their own zone uh and then in just in terms of getting set up maybe once they get set up you could argue that they've had some some nice little plays there uh i don't know of a whole lot else though that i think stands out as uh as a team that looks confident right now with the man advantage yeah i mean I think that's a great point. I think when they get set up and when they get in their system, they are a team that does move the puck around a little bit uh, better than maybe most. But for, from their standpoint, their number one issue for, honestly, the last four years has been getting set up. They're, they've just struggled uh, for years with getting su- uh, successful zone entries, maintaining possession. And then, honestly, the, the area that's not really talked about as much is I think they really struggle with puck retrieval. So yeah. when you when you shoot the puck and the, the puck, either the goalie makes a save or it gets blocked in front, you've got an extra man. You should be winning a majority of those puck battles in that zone, particularly with the defense largely concentrated in front of the net. But that's another area the Wings have really struggled, and so it, it basically prevents them from being able to sustain pressure. So, for example, like this was a hockey field weekend for me. I was watching, uh, I went to the Hurricanes play, uh, game on Saturday night, and even just watching their, their power play there, the number of times they actually retrieved the loose puck on the power play after a block shot, a, a rebound, it was 
is vastly different than what you see with the Red Wings power play. And I'm just not sure if the shots are coming in unexpected situations. They're not actually generating enough rebounds because a lot of their shots are getting gloved down or maybe frozen by the goaltender. Uh, I'm not sure what the problem is, but there's just a lot of different facets of the power play that really haven't worked for four years uh, since Jim Hiller left uh, with Mike Babcock. Yeah, I don't know what it is either. I mean, it, it it's just such a all-consuming drop-off once they get to the power play. Like, I, I don't even know if you can say once they're set up, it's better than most teams. I think it's just like, you know, not not obviously the worst or something like that at that point, right? Like, I mean, especially when Mantha was in the lineup, at least it, was, it looked like an NHL power play. Uh, it did not tonight. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think probably a misspeak on my, my part to say that they're better than most. I think maybe at best you're hoping for their average. Yeah. Uh, even with Mantha in the lineup, that was, it's just a unit that doesn't have the, the right personnel on the power play. I think you got to see it in, in one situation where it was Philip Ronick who had the puck up top and he had a great scenario where he'd created a ton of space along the left half wall. But instead of having a right-handed shot in that spot to be able to pass and make that one-timer, he's got a left-handed shot there. And so if he goes to the left-handed shot, even though that's where the open ice is, that player is not in a scoring position um, to be able to put the puck on net. And so from handedness, and I think, you know, Washington's a team that's done an excellent job with having the right handedness on their power play so that there's three or four different passing lanes available to you there's just so many different problems right now that it's hard to know where to start yep uh and then even at even strength i didn't think uh you know it's it's becoming a trend again that the red wings top line is able to get quite a bit done the others struggling maybe a little bit more i didn't think the the second line with phil Zadina, and ernie uh was all that impressive tonight either yeah i think the second line was really disrupted by the flow of special teams mm-hmm. because Zadina gets a lot of that power play time on the first unit uh, Philpola gets a little bit on the second unit. Ernie obviously not getting any ice time. And so then when they're coming back after those special team situations, uh, it was very hard for that uh, line to really see the ice. And I think Philip Zadina in particular uh, had a or missed a couple of shifts um, due to, you know, potentially some perceived errors on his part. So obviously the Fabry pass we talked about. And then later on in the third period, there was a miscommunication between Zadina and Abdelkader as to, who was going to take Bogosian along that half wall, and neither of them actually took him, and that's what allowed Bogosian to cut into the middle. Uh, then Zadina misses on the stick check. Bogosian goes forehand, backhand, and puts it past Howard to, for the Sabres to go up 4-1, and he missed a couple shifts after that. So I just think it was really hard for that second line to get any sort of rhythm. They only played a total of 5-28 together tonight at 5-on-5, five five, which was the lowest of any of Detroit's four lines that they rolled. So... You know, it, it was not their best night. And again, we, as we've talked about, when the first line's going, all they really need is some other line to pick it up and that team can be competitive. But tonight, nobody else was able to really help them out. I do think, though, Dylan Larkin's on one of his better stretches of play through this season. He gets another assist tonight. But I think really for the last couple of weeks, really since Christmas, um, he's looked very, very good. Yeah, for a while, a lot of people were really concerned with Larkin's performance, particularly his scoring. And, you know, you and I have talked about it, that we think his all-around game is significantly picked up. He grades out really well when we look at evolving hockey's goals above replacement metric. Uh, he's 57th among forwards, which would put you squarely in the middle first line level, uh, which is exactly what you're hoping for as a Wings fan. But 
obviously he had long stretches where he wasn't scoring, but now with an assist on the on the Madison Bowie goal, he's got a six game point streak going with six points in those six games. So he's quietly picking up some scoring numbers to to go along with that play, and I think he's picked up his five on five play a little bit as well. What's his point streak at now? Six games, I think. Yeah, six games. So you know he's picking it up, and and we'll see if he's able to add on. So far, no multi point games. Everything's mm-hmm. just been one point per game. But he's uh he's certainly doing his part to get the wings. Uh, on track. And if there was another positive, it's probably Madison Bowie who uh, scores a goal on a really nice shot from a point, really effectively uses a screen from Tyler Bertuzzi. Um, he's a guy who's come on a little bit since his demotion uh, to, to Grand Rapids in December and his offense is starting to pick up. I noticed the physicality quite a bit around the ice again tonight. When do you, when do you start to take this pretty seriously from Bowie? I think it's uh, the Grand Rapids send-down was a wake-up call for him, and so he got obviously tabbed first between him and Chalowski to come back up. And, you know, I think tonight was one of his better games overall. Uh, and, you know, you're right absolutely on that shot that he makes. It's a very smart shot. He he, he catches Allmark looking uh, to his left, and so Bowie shoots right, and Allmark's not able to recover and get back across there. Um, you know, my personal uh, stance on Bowie has been I just don't think he really offers you enough uh, in the other facets of the game. I've kind of equated it when I watch Bowie play, and maybe this is a, f- a fair or unfair comparison, so Max, I'll let you rebuttal this afterwards. But when I watch him play, he's a guy who seems to know what the right play is, but makes it maybe a half a second late, hmm. and everybody else on the other team has already recognized what that play is. And so it often always seems like it's a rushed play or it's a disrupted play. And particularly when I watch him in his own zone, I get that impression where he knows where that puck's supposed to go and he makes the right read. It's just it's a half second or a second late and either the opposition has read it and jumped on it or they're able to get there and disrupt it and so it doesn't look particularly clean. But, you know, when he's able to chip in on scoring, he's second on the team in uh, defense scoring only behind uh, Philip Ronick at this point. It, it, It does help in that department at least. Yeah, that that might be fair. I haven't really paid that close attention to to that specific trait, but I'll, I'll look for it. But I don't think it's it's out of character with kind of the overall picture in his own end. But I guess the flip side would be he is one of the very few Red Wings defensemen, maybe along with you know Horonic and maybe Mike Green, who who will carry the puck deeper than just the point and not just dump it right back down instinctively. He's a guy who will walk that puck down the half wall a little bit, and I think that's something. Uh, at the end of the day, it's very valuable to this team right now. I, I'm not saying you know he, he's a super or anything like that, but I think that's something that they kind of need just in order to maintain possession and get used to playing, you know, a sustained ozone possession. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point because right now there's not a lot of Red Wings defensemen that want to play with the puck. Uh, you're absolutely right in saying that, and he is a guy who does want to play with the puck. I think he got to see that a little bit when he got some extended looks on the power play uh, in the game against the Sabres. He was able to, to play with the puck, move it down the half boards. Uh, kind of cycle behind the net even if he needed to. And so he's very comfortable with it in the offensive zone. I think right now the challenge is balancing what he gives you in the offensive zone with that puck possession, with how he's playing with it in the defensive zone, where, like I said, it just always seems like he's a half second late in making the right play. It's the right read. It's just it gets taken away. And that's that's the difference, honestly, between the AHL and the NHL is 
that time, how much faster things happen. And I think while it looks better in the offensive zone, I do think the defensive zone has been a bigger issue. And ultimately, I think he, he gives back more than he's getting. But all that being said, there's not a lot of guys who want to play with the puck on their stick right now on Detroit's blue line, and he's certainly one of them. A guy who I think was very happy to play with the puck on his stick a little bit tonight was Evan Rodriguez, who entered the game with no goals for Buffalo, and uh, he he handled that pretty quickly and added another one all within the first five minutes. So uh, you're welcome, Evan, for the courtesy of, uh, of the fine people of Detroit. Yeah, I mean, Evan Rodriguez and Zach Bogosian both asked for trades. They both draw into the lineup tonight, and what do you know? They both have goals. So, hey, I mean, maybe uh, get a couple more games against Detroit, inflate that value, and Buffalo get some good pieces for them. It was uh he had a, he had a really good look at a, at a hat trick one and uh, that would have been really fun if he if he could have gotten it he had it right in the slot I think he rushed it it was like a turnaround shot uh, that would 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 have been kind of a fun moment for him yeah I mean he he struggled to really get his game going he seems like a player who should be able to do a lot more than he's been able to on the season but got a couple of good ones and then almost had that hat trick like you said so and then Bogosian I mean honestly he's a guy looking for uh, a way out given the the plethora of defensemen on, on Buffalo's blue line, and he had an excellent move coming forehand back in in the slot. I mean, dangled right around a couple wings players and, and put a nice shot past Jimmy Howard. So, hey, two guys looking to improve their trade value, and they certainly did that here. Mm-hmm. Um, the other game that happened since the last time we've talked was a, a long one, but I, I think a pretty tight one, if not a particularly, uh, I don't know if you call it a good game, but the Red Wings beat the Senators 3-2 in a shootout. Jonathan Bernier outstanding down the stretch. Thought maybe one of the better lines of that Larkin-Bertuzzi-Fabry combination uh, that we've seen so far. What do you remember about that one? What, what will you take forward coming out of it? Well, it was certainly a hockey game, and honestly, I wish it was for the rights to Alexi Lafreniere. I think it was it was honestly a very uh, kind of ugly game to to watch. Which, again, you should certainly expect that when you're talking about arguably two of the worst teams in the NHL. Um, so it wasn't a, a pretty sight, but I think Detroit again was able to stay very competitive. In that game, I really thought Dylan Larkin was the best player for the Wings that night, and the Wings really leaned on that top line. That top line played more than 15 minutes at 5-on-5. Larkin has the great end-to-end rush uh, on the power play uh, to get the Wings going, and the Wings actually were able to build up a 2 nothing lead before they uh, gave it back to the Senators within a span of five minutes. Um, and then they were able to get it in the shootout again with Larkin having a, a, a great backhand forehand move to to get the wings to win there and you know he's just been excellent the last few games and he's really getting the motor going and I think the other thing that was really key for the wings that night was Jonathan Bernier was excellent after the wings kind of fell apart after those first 25 minutes yeah he was he was really good and I I feel very badly because I had three stars uh, for that game and I don't know if people realize this, but they're due with like five minutes left in the third period of regulation, right? So, so I turn them in. And I don't remember what I, I think I put like Larkin, Bertuzzi, and uh, who had Colin White, maybe something like that um, for the Senators. And then obviously Bernier turns it on and, and is fantastic on the stretch. Probably deserved to be the number one star of that game. Uh, so if you're listening, Jonathan, that's that's my bad. Yeah, I mean, honestly, he Bernie's been, you can make an argument that at this point in the season, uh, if you're taking every player, uh, Jonathan Bernie should be in the top three for MVP discussion for this Red Wings team. And I think that one tells you the state of the Red Wings. Uh, but two, I mean, it tells you how much uh, value Bernie has really provided for the Wings. Because if you saw the contrast in goaltending between Howard and, and Bernier between the two games, 
it just seems right now Jimmy Howard's playing with absolutely no confidence whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's tracking the puck well. It doesn't seem like he's getting his movements well. You know, they the, were talking about it on the Fox Sports broadcast, but the, the Jurgensen's goal by uh, on the shorthanded breakaway, we've seen Howard get that right pad down, you, you know, time after time after time on that breakaway, and that's a read he usually makes. He gets a good push, and he gets that leg extended, and it just seemed like he was late on it. Didn't make the same read that he usually makes, and, and, and Jurgensen's able to slide that puck past him. So Bernier, by contrast, over the last few games, I don't even know that I can find a single bad goal he's really given up. He saved more goals than expected based on the quality of shots faced in five of his last six starts. I mean, he's really providing a lot of value for the Wings at this point. Yeah, and I think he, you know, especially in the shootout, the Red Wings, not a particularly inspiring shootout performance. Not that the shootouts matter at all, but he was outstanding in it. I think he, you know, even the, the, the Ennis move that was, uh, that, you know, he flipped his, his stick over and tried to score it with the toe. Uh, he was even on the ball for that one. I know a lot of people criticized Tyler Ennis for making that move after, uh, after the game. Number one, what did he have to lose? It's not like the shootout was going to have dramatic effects on, Ottawa's standings position. They're not in the middle of a playoff race. So fine. Try something creative. Two, he was half an inch from scoring. Yes. That puck hit the top of Jonathan Bernier's stick blade, hit Bernier right in the chest and fell back down. Yep. But Bernier had no idea where that puck was and it just happened to be under him. So it's not like that was a move that was just completely wasted. He barely missed it by half an inch. So you know, kudos to Bernier for keeping that stick in the right spot because that's exactly how you're supposed to make that save. I'm a big fan of all toe-related moves in the shootout. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan for putting the toe directly on the puck and whipping it around because the puck will do crazy things when you got it on that. So uh, I was I was very happy to see that from Ennis. I mean, I'm happy to see any sort of creativity. I mean, Wings fans have been looking for it ever since Datsuk uh, introduced all sorts of moves. Um for Red Wings fans to be able to witness, including one where he decided he was just going to flip the puck over Antti Niemi. And I think that was a Sunday matinee game against the Blackhawks. And he just decides, I'm going to just uh, whip this back and just uh, basically lob it over him and watch this puck trickle over the goal line. So, hey, I'm totally fine with any sort of creativity. And we would all be talking about this very differently if Ennis scores that goal and he only missed by half an inch. This does raise the question, though. We're talking about creativity in, in shootouts. Uh, the Red Wings have a particularly creative young player on their roster who was not selected for the shootout. Instead, uh, Franz Nielsen selected. I think he's one of, if not the all-time shootout leader. We know this. Uh, you know, the move that he scored on, I think Jeff Blasher made the point that it's not a move that's going to look real flashy, but it's worked for him a lot. You can buy that or not buy that. Uh, I, I, you got to give Zadina a look there, though, right? Yeah, I mean, if I was drawing the shootout lineup card, I would have had Philip Zadina shooting third. Uh, I understand why Nielsen is selected. He is the all-time shootout leader. In fact, uh, we were looking this up the other day, myself and, and Peter Flynn, and we've noticed that ever since Nielsen has come to Detroit, uh, he has taken, he's participated in every shootout that Detroit's played in except for one. So he has basically been a lineup state, uh, a lineup staple for them. And yeah, I mean, Blashell's right. The move that, Nielsen is famous for is, is his forehand, backhand, top shelf, which he ultimately didn't go for. He ended up uh, electing to shoot five-hole on this one. I, I understand why he's selected, but at the same time, you know, give Phillips Zadina a chance there, particularly when you're already up 1-0 in the shootout. Um, 
it's not like, you know, the lineup card is obviously turned in before that, so it's not like Blashville can change it at that point. But either way, I think Zadina would have benefited from being in that position, and I think that would have been something for the Wings fans to enjoy. So the, the point that Blashville made was he thinks there's a difference between gameplay scoring confidence and shootout scoring confidence and that, uh, you know, they're not always correlated. I think you made the point that Anthony Mantha is not always the most confident in a shootout, even when he's on an absolute heater in live, you know, five on five, four on four, whatever action. Um, maybe, maybe you buy that and you give that some credibility. I think that does probably hold some water. And yet I got to think, you know, in terms of Deeks, in terms of hesitation, deceptiveness, uh, Phillips Adina has got to be, if not number one in the top three on your team at just about all of those traits. Like if, if there's a trait of his that you're knocking as a goal scorer, it's his speed and the shootout is the one time that doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly buy that argument from Blasio simply because if you look at the list of the top shootout scorers of all time, they're not typically the guys that are, uh, highest, uh, on the goal scoring totals or even the guys who score the most on in-game breakaways. Uh, you know, Connor McDavid is in a shootout, uh, extraordinaire by any stretch. Uh, some of the guys up there make sense, like Patrick Kane and, and Pavel Datsuk. Um, but Franz Nielsen is not a guy that you necessarily think scares you and he's the all-time shootout leader. Similarly, there's, you know, guys like Andrew Burnett, who is always so lethal in the shootout. He was not a guy who's going to necessarily scare you when he's coming down with a shot. So that totally, I, I can buy that to a certain extent, but same thing. Zadina's never actually been in the shootout at the NHL level, right? So, uh, why not give him a shot and just see what he looks like? Well, and everyone's seen, you know, kind of the moves that he pulls off, like in practice. And I don't know. We could, I guess we could do this for hours and it, it wouldn't matter. But, uh, I thought that Zadina probably deserved a look in that shootout, especially with, uh, the way that he'd been playing lately, I thought that that would have been a, a good reward for him. But alas, it does not happen. Anything else from from these two games that you want to talk about before we move into some more newsier, trendy items? Well, I mean, we have to talk about who at the uh, at LCA is actually casting that force field that prevents the Wings from scoring on open nets. Because both in the Ottawa game, you have the crazy overtime sequence where somehow the Wings get uh, three or four chances. Uh, and Philpola shoots one that gets stopped by Hogbird. There's the puck that rolls right past the goal line. Mike Green shoots one, gets blocked, shoots it again from three feet out, hits the post. And then in the game against the Sabres, you have that puck that kind of trickles right between Allmark's pads, and it's Helms diving to poke check it into the net. It goes right underneath his stick, and one of the Sabres defensemen is able to swipe it out. I mean, there's some sort of force field that's in front of that net there, right? Yeah, I mean, whoever's casting it has to be a big Philip Hronick fan because Hronick seems to not be deterred by it when he's taking his full ice shots. So maybe, maybe that person is, uh, casting a force field with, with the idea of keeping the, the game close enough that Hronick can get another shot at those full icers. That's the only thing that, that makes sense at this point. Well, cause you know, if we're thinking about it, right, Hronick's full icers are happening in the third period. That's a different end that That's they're true. shooting on. That's because true. Because this was, the Sabres one was in the second period and then, the uh, the other one against Ottawa was in overtime, which they switched sides of the ice for for overtime. So you know, conceivably, it's one side of the ice that's happening here. The other option, and I don't know how much time we want to spend considering you know something like this. It, one one thing that's occurred to me is the Red Wings uh, might not be very good. Oh yeah, no, that's probably the more likely explanation here. Uh, Darren Helm, I don't know how that one didn't go in in this Buffalo game. I mean, he dives for it, the, the puck's sitting there. It, I, like, it looked like the stick got a piece of it and then the puck just didn't move. Yeah, on the uh, broadcast, Mickey was going over this and he basically thinks because of the way that Helm's stick is, is curved, uh, 
uh, the curve was actually sitting on the on the outside or basically facing upwards, meaning that instead of the puck like uh, hitting the top of the blade and going in, it actually slid like partially underneath the curve, and so he wasn't able to poke it in uh, with you know with uh, by virtue of Helm being a left-handed shot there, and so. That was just crazy. I mean, I don't know that I've seen anything like that, and then it happens in back-to-back games. So that was that was peak Red Wings. Yep, very wild. Um, some newsier things. I mean, obviously the Bernier injury, uh, a big one. I mean, he he's out. He misses the game. They have to emergency recall Calvin Picard. Kind of as we were talking about earlier, you know, I guess there's really no stakes to this season anymore. It doesn't really matter uh, in terms of wins and losses, but number one, Bernier was playing very well, and for a guy who who was starting to heat up, you probably, if you're Jonathan Bernier, are pretty bummed to have anything come up and disrupt that. And number two, from the Red Wings' perspective, he's really the only guy that's given them a chance to win consistently night in and night out. Uh, the schedule's about to get even harder for the Red Wings. Pretty tough timing for them. Yeah, I mean, Bernier, like I mentioned earlier, he's he's been absolutely sensational. You really can't find a bad goal that he's given up in the last five or six games. Uh, if you look at just his last six starts, he's saved more goals than expected in five of those six, meaning he's given you a chance to win. He's not even given up just what's baseline. He's given you a chance to win in five of those. Um, and then if you're looking at vice versa in terms of what Jimmy Howard's given you, well, really, he's not given the Wings a chance to win hardly at all. So, number one, the Wings haven't won a game that Jimmy Howard has started in since October 29th. If you remember that back, that was the game against Edmonton. Um, otherwise, they have not actually won a Jimmy Howard game in almost three months. Uh, secondly, he's only given them a chance to win in three of his 18 appearances. So, what I mean by that is he has only saved more goals than expected based on the quality of shots faced in three out of 18 appearances this season, which is the fewest in the league by any goaltender. And now through 18 starts or 18 appearances, he's allowed 19.3 more goals than expected, uh, which is the worst in the league. And if you actually took him back and stuck him in last season, uh, that would already be the fifth worst mark of any goaltender. And he's only played in 18 games. So it's been very, very bad. So even without Jonathan Bernier, by virtue of looking at what your alternative options are, the Wings are certainly going to be in a world of hurt if, if Bernier is out for a period of time. Even if he only misses a week, the games in the next week are at the Islanders and then home against the Penguins and uh, Florida Panthers, who are putting a absolute hurting on the Maple Leafs as we speak. They had seven goals at the end of the second period tonight. And then at Colorado, uh, I don't know if he can win a single one of those without Jonathan Bernier. I don't know if he can keep a single one of those to a one-goal game without Jonathan Bernier. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you're basically asking the team. You're you're walking in and saying you're going to need the team to score five goals that night for you to win, and even five might not be enough. I mean, Jimmy Howard in seven of his last 11 appearances has given up four or more goals. So you are effectively saying you're going to need you're going to need five goals to win this game, if not more. And that's been a very rare occurrence for the Wings this season. It has. Uh, anything else on Larkin before we we get going here? No, I just wanted to make sure we noted that he's on a six-game point streak, and then right now he's looking very solidly as a middle kind of first-line player. And so I think his emergence this season has to be uh, a bright spot for the Wings, even though the point totals aren't necessarily where you want him to be. It is very important to note that his all-around game is certainly coming through. He's grading out well by a number of the advanced metrics that are available. And he's looking squarely like a first-line player, which is – uh, if you're Steve Eiserman at this point and you're trying to take stock of the guys that 
need to be a part of this core and what you need to still add to this team in order to turn them into a contender. You're seeing a guy like Dylan Larkin at his age establishing himself as a firm first-line player, and he potentially gives you an option and what could even be a luxury that if you are able to get another guy who can play first-line center and Larkin's able to slide down into that 2C spot like you and I have talked about, Max, you now are actually talking about having a luxury at the center position with potentially two first-line level centers playing on your team. So I think it's really important noting that Larkin has quietly morphed himself into what appears to be a first-line center. And then along with him, Philip Roenick has kind of moved himself into that fringe first-pairing defenseman slash uh, second-pairing uh, defenseman. So right now, by the same goals above replacement, uh, he ranks 86th amongst defensemen, which puts him kind of squarely in the in the second-pairing guy because we're thinking if, the, if there's 31 teams and each team has six defensemen, um, you're effectively talking about, you know, 190 some, 190 or 210 guys that you're looking at and you're dividing it up between your first pairing guys, your second pairing guys and your third pairing guys. So you're looking at kind of the top 93 guys as being, uh, first, uh, first liners for forwards, maybe the top 61, 62, uh, defensemen being your, your second pairing defensemen. So, Ronick right now is kind of closer to the second pairing, but he's not super far off from being uh, a first pairing guy. And so, again, he's another guy who's been able to contribute offensively. Um, he's 25th in D scoring. And so he's another potential cornerstone for Eiserman to, to build around moving forward. So here's something I always think about. Are there a are there really like 31 first line centers? Are there really 60 first pair, 62 first pairing defensemen in the league? Or, or is it kind of something where at any given time, because of scarcity, there's really only half as many of those guys as there are players who will play on a first line or a first pair? Yeah, I think this is a great question and it comes down to basically the, the fundamental view of the position. To me, there is always 31, you know, first line centers simply because there's 31 teams and there's 31 guys that are going to be in those roles. Um, whereas if you're trying to think about how good, you know, how good would you expect that 31, the top 31 centers to be? I think that's a different question, um, because they're not all playing in those first line center roles, even if some of those guys are on the same team. Uh, so to me, it's always going to be fundamentally if there's 31 top line centers, you know, there's a top 62, uh, or your top pairing defensemen. Um, just simply because that's the number of available positions and that's the number of guys that are playing in those roles. Whether or not some of those guys are playing above their heads or below their heads is a different story. You know, Philip Ronick right now is being asked to play like a top-pairing defenseman and is performing kind of at the level of a second-pairing defenseman maybe is the way to uh, to view it. So he's he's not super far in over his head, if you will. See, I, I kind of view it where there there is always going to be a scarcity of of teams who don't have it, and maybe maybe it does even out where you look at a team like the Penguins who have Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin, and, and and when it all works out, you know maybe there's only twenty three teams or whatever who have a legit first line center, but there's enough teams that have two that it works out that hey, you know that that actually comes out to be about right. You know, you think about a team like St. Louis. I think Braden Shen could probably argue that he could be a first line center on some teams, right? You know, Ottawa or whatever. Uh, but you know, on, on St. Louis, he's behind Ryan O'Reilly. Um, so I, I, I gotta think that there's maybe a little fewer than the number of teams that at any given, like kind of lineup spot, like, would you say there's 31, like number one goaltenders in the league? 
I mean, I'd say there's 31 guys playing in a number one goaltending yeah. spot, right? Yeah, and so yeah. it just comes down to semantics and, and how you're going to phrase it and how you're going to perceive it. But you have 31 goaltenders playing at, at, in a number one goaltending spot, whether or not they're actually deserving of playing in that role, I think is a, is a different story. But there are 31 roles and 31 jobs available. Some people are going to underperform. Some people are going to overperform and some people are going to perform right at that league average. And so I think that's where, you want to view your lineup and say, I have these spots and I'm playing these guys in these spots. How do, how are they performing when they're played in those spots? And that'll maybe help me understand, are they better suited to shift down or shift up? And so that's where a guy like Philip Bronick, who is playing kind of right at that fringe first pairing slash top level second pairing guy, but he's being asked to play heavy first pairing minutes. I think he's a guy you ask yourself and say, maybe in a perfect world, he's your number three defenseman. But right now, he's in my number one spot, and he's the number one defenseman, and he's almost looking like one. Yeah, I guess the way that it, I guess it comes into play is in roster construction, right? Because I could be happy if I'm a GM either way with, with like a guy like Patrice Bergeron as my number one center. Who's, who's the second center? Krejci still? Yeah. So Krejci's probably, you know, solidly like in that, you know, what, 35 to 60 range as a second line center for the league? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, okay. So so I could be happy with that, or I could be happy with, like, two guys in, like, the 25 range. And that's kind of more the St. Louis model. You got the O'Reillys and the Shen. So I think you could be happy either way. But but if you delude yourself and you classify them, like, okay, well, this guy's in the top 30, so he's a 1C. Now I just need a 2C. And, and you end up with a guy who's, like, you know, the number... 25 first line center and you also have a guy who's like the number 25 second line center well then i don't think you're actually going to be that good of a team i think you either need two guys who are right near that threshold whether between the first and second line or you need a guy who's really up there right near the top 10 of the position or so as your first line and then maybe you can get away with a guy who's who's maybe not so high it's kind of semantics like you said it maybe maybe we're arguing about nothing here or nothing that is really uh actually has a practical application but it's just something i think about when we talk about i, I don't you know i think larkin probably is a, a a legit first line center no matter what the definition is um but but i think maybe with ronick it's a little more interesting he's unquestionably been detroit's number one most used defenseman uh, but he's probably more like a two three on, on a good team you would think yeah i mean i think what i'm gathering from some of the data here is that he's probably best suited as a third as a uh, like a third defenseman so Kind of a, you've got the better guy guys. on the second right. pair. Yeah. Exactly. He's, he's the guy carrying the second pair. And I think that's probably where he's best suited. And I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Max. And what you're essentially uh, illustrating is the point of why binning is not a great idea. So you don't want to treat the guy who's the number one uh, center in that top 31 center bucket the same as the guy who's the number 31 center and think that you have the same thing. Uh, you have to recognize what the level uh, or what the range of talent is within that spectrum. You know, we're not going to walk in and here and say that uh, Dylan Larkin is on par with Connor McDavid simply because they're both one C's. I think there's a substantial, you know, difference in, in what they're going to give you um, on a night in and night out basis, even though they mo they both may fall in that one C bucket. And so you're, you're absolutely right, Max, and that you want to have obviously the best of the, of the respective buckets if you can, um, but doing the best you can to, to acquire as much talent as possible, I think is, is the answer at the end of the day. And cause when you're looking at Detroit's roster right now, you're saying, okay, maybe they have a, a middle tier one C, maybe they have a, a middle tier winger in, in Mantha, maybe they have a upper tier second winger in Bertuzzi, 
and maybe a third or third line winger in Athanasiu, um, and potentially a, a second line winger in Zadina. But beyond that, you're talking about stuff that's fourth line or lower, um, for their forward group. And then you're really only talking about Philip Ronick, uh, and then Danny DeKaiser, obviously, once he's back, potentially being a second or third pairing guy in a perfect situation. But, um, outside of that, there's, the wings are just needing a talent infusion. I do think though that, you know, the, the reason that I like the terms like top six, middle six, bottom six is it, it actually more accurately reflects the way lineups are constructed. You're not just going to put your three best players on your first line. Sometimes you will, but a lot of times you're going to flex guys around. And, and that's really, I think it adds value to a guy like Bertuzzi where you say, okay, maybe he's not one of the straight up top 90 forwards in the league. Maybe he's more like top 100 or whatever. But that still means that he can flex on and off your top line incredibly smoothly. Like if the Red Wings are a contending team in two to three years, Tyler Bertuzzi is going to be a piece that teams can, you know, whoever's coaching this team at that point can can move around really uh, strategically to make sure that uh, they're getting good matchups, they're getting favorable chemistry. And I think that's the value of those terms if you are going to bin, bin with a broader range, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's totally fair. And again, just recognizing that if you're going to classify, you know, players as they are, just recognize what the range of of talent is within that bucket. And you're absolutely right, Max. I mean, you're not always playing your three best players on the same line. You're not always doing what Boston's doing and loading up with, you know, Bergeron, Marchand, and and uh, Pasternak all on the same line. You're not doing what Edmonton's doing and going with. Uh, you know, James Neal, Connor McDavid, and, and Leon Dreisaitl all on the same line. Sometimes you are staggering it out. I mean, if you're looking at a team like Washington, you look at a guy like Tom Wilson who can move all the way up and down the lineup, and that's kind of what Tyler Bertuzzi is for, for Detroit. He's able to score at that level. He's able to contribute and impact play at that level and can move up and down the lineup as needed, and right now he's needed on that top line for balancing chemistry purposes and also because he's arguably Detroit's second-best forward in the lineup right now. But... Yeah, you know, he's a guy that should be able to flex all the way between your top three lines and still have a significant impact on the game. And when it comes to Hironic, certainly uh, you have to recognize this is a guy who just played his 90th NHL game Sunday night. Um, I do think he can continue to get better. I don't think it's impossible that he will someday be a kind of more bona fide first pair guy just because of how good he's already managed to be in just a little more than one full NHL season. Yeah, I mean, it's really impressive how quickly he's kind of moved up the ranks and how quickly he's taken over uh, Detroit's kind of blue line. I mean, we have to remember this guy is basically 22 years old, and he won't be 23 until November of 2020. So this is this is a guy who's still got a lot to learn. He's getting better and better. Um, I expect him to take substantial steps over the next one to two years, and you're probably in two years from now, you're going to see what peak Philip, uh, Philip Ronick looks like and. It could be a very, very good player. So I think he's a guy you really want to keep an eye on given how well he's already scoring and impacting the game at just at such a young age. Yep, absolutely. Uh, all right, should we get into some Grand Rapids stuff before we go to the questions? Yeah, yeah. So I think the big news for Grand Rapids is they finally are getting some reinforcements with Moritz Sider and Joe Valeno back in Grand Rapids. Uh, they were back on Saturday night against the Manitoba Moose and uh, boy, all of the prospects that Wings fans want to hear about, well, they had themselves a night. Uh, with Michael Rasmussen back from injury, he scores two goals. Sider gets a goal. Chalowski gets a goal. Valeno gets an assist. Uh, it was probably Grand Rapids' best performance in recent weeks, wouldn't you say, Max? 
Yeah, it might have been. I haven't actually been able to watch a ton of their games. That Just the, t- the timing of some of them has been tough. Uh, I was able to have uh, this one on at least, and so I saw uh, all those goals. I, I was, have, you, have you seen all of them by now? Yeah, I mean, they poured in five goals in that second period there, which I think, was that a franchise record, if I remember seeing that correctly? It might be. I, I don't know about that, but but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, that would be hard to top that in one period. Uh, I was going to ask you to rank what, what you think the the order of those three goals are between the Cider goal and the two Rasmussen goals. Oh, that's tough, because I really like the Cider goal. It just shows, showcased a lot from him. But also, same thing with Rasmussen. I mean, it's just... It, he had such a great start to the season in Grand Rapids, and uh, um, seeing him be able to come back and pick right back up, that was only his second game back and be able to pot a couple. And I know they were really pressing to get him that hat trick. I don't know. I mean, I'm really I'm really uh, partial to that Sider goal just with the way he was moving. I am too. I think it, it was impressive instinct of him to go get that puck because the goalie never saw him. He steals it clean off his stick behind the net and wraps it in. Uh, but then I think a, a close second was the Rasmussen tip, and that's we talk about all the time. Yes, the skating is maybe not what you you, you know want ideally out of an NHL center, but he's going to make up for it in ways like that where you look a couple years down the line. If the Red Wings' two power play units have Michael Rasmussen and Tyler Bertuzzi at the net, um, that could be a major difference maker. Yeah, I mean, they're basically looking for a redux of uh, Thomas Holmstrom and Johan Franzen on the two power play units. Uh, when they had those two guys being able to tip bucks in front of the net. And so if they're able to have Rasmussen and Bertuzzi in front, two guys who are able to be smart screeners. And what I mean by that is a classic example of this smart screening is what Tyler Bertuzzi did in the game against Buffalo to get the Madison Bowery goal. It's not that park yourself right in front of the net uh, and basically just stand there. Um, you know, not everybody can do that. There's a couple of guys who are able to be that good, and that's, one, Thomas Holmstrom, and two, Ryan Smith years back in Edmonton. Those were the guys who could literally stand right in front of the net and set those perfect screens and tip every puck that came their way. But a lot of guys nowadays, they try to do that. The puck just ends up hitting them, and it never goes in the net. Wings fans dealt with that with Justin Advocator for years. Bertuzzi's a real smart screener that he knows how to move in and out of the goalie's line of sight, get them to bite on looking around a certain direction, and then gets out of the way and makes sure that that shot gets through to the net and and often into the net. And so I think those two guys uh, on the power play units would be huge helps. So there's a listener question on this topic if you're ready to go that direction. Let's do it. All right, so the, it's from Ryan Brown. He asks, why is Michael Rasmussen not discussed in the same breath as Joe Valeno? He thinks Rasmussen has a higher ceiling than Valeno, and once he figures his body out, he should dominate not a Mantha Shaw but similar frame. Uh, what are your opinions on why Rasmussen is not discussed in that breath, or do you think he ought to be? So we'll start with, for those of you that have ever watched How I Met Your Mother, there's a great quote in there that says, new is always better. Hmm. And so Joe Valeno is drafted more recently than Michael Rasmussen and therefore is going to be talked about in a different light than Michael Rasmussen. I think this happens year after year after year where whoever is the most recent prospect is the newest topic of discussion, is the one that gets the most press, and is the one that people speak most fondly of because Often at that time, you don't really have anything to go on that would really dissuade your opinion. And so I think it's important to remember with Michael Rasmussen, he had, he really struggled um, at 5-on-5 five five last season in Detroit, really struggled to find his ice time. Now, he had to be there out of necessity because the other option was going back uh, to, to Tri-City where he wasn't really going to get a whole lot more development. Um, but he really struggled at times to, to find his game at five on five. 
obviously he's still a young kid. He's still learning a lot. Um, and he's got a lot of abilities like you, you spoke about, Max. I'm personally not sold on his skating ability and his ability to make a big impact at five on five. I think he's a guy who's going to maybe be that third line uh, or even fourth line guy or potentially may have to flex out to winger. Um, and he's a guy that's going to be a useful power play tool, but I'm not sure that he's going to be a significant impact player at five on five. Valeno, on the other hand, you know, he had a maybe higher pedigree given that he had the exceptional status. He came in when he came in. He has shown to be a much more prolific scorer than, than Rasmussen, doesn't carry the same injury history that Rasmussen does with the, the several wrist injuries now. Um, and for me, I think he gives you potentially a higher ceiling on being that 200-foot, uh, two-way center that has that scoring upside. I still don't think he's much higher than a 3C, though, so if I am projecting both those guys, I'm still calling them at third line right now, but if you had to ask me, Who's the guy that can flex up from that position? It's going to be Valeno because I think I trust his skating a little bit more. I trust his ability to impact five on five more. And I trust his ability to get on the score sheet more than Rasmussen. So I don't disagree with those individual points, but I don't know that I agree with the conclusion. I I actually consider Valeno and Rasmussen to be pretty comparable prospects in terms of overall ceiling. I think at their ceiling, both could be second-line guys. I think Rasmussen has a better chance to impact special teams in a a big way, but I think Valeno can be a little bit uh, more natural five-on-five play driver, Uh, although I don't know that he's going to drive play in a a major way at at the NHL level, uh, at least offensively. But I I consider them, I've got my uh, prospect rankings coming in the next week or so, and I've got them, I won't say which order, but I've got them one after another. So I consider them to be very comparable uh, as of right now. And I think one of the reasons I think Rasmussen can be not just like a useful power play player, but like an excellent power play player with, with, in terms of the screening, in terms of what the physicality and size can do in front of the net, not just the, the tipping ability, which I think is very good, uh, but also how hard he is to move there. I think it can be a big difference maker. And I think they're both going to kill penalties, um, but I, I think Rasmussen's reach makes a big difference there. And that's something that we've seen pay off really well for Anthony Mantha uh, in the defensive zone. Now, we haven't seen Michael Rasmussen uh, in the NHL as a center much, uh, if at all. I don't even know. It maybe took a couple face-offs or something last year. But um, I'm curious to see what it looks like. He's been pretty effective in, in Grand Rapids. He's actually pretty close in age to Joe Valeno, too. So uh, I do consider them in the same tier. I think that, um, you know, Valeno has that super productive year last year in the queue, and I think that's a big driving force for people as to what uh, where sort of the excitement for uh, maybe why he's the, the higher ceiling prospect comes from. They've seen that, you know, into the 100 points production, but I consider both of them to be kind of like solid middle six uh, projections in, in, at the center position, which I think are two good prospects. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't think there's a huge separation between the two. I just think if I'm going to stake uh, my money on who I think is more likely to uh, overperform on the projection that I'm placing right now in my head, which is potentially 3C for Valeno and third-line winger for, for Rasmussen, um, you know, if I'm thinking about the guy who I, I feel is more likely to outperform that projection, it is Valeno at this time. And you're, you're absolutely right, Max. Part of this is probably just me uh, following my own advice and that new is always better and thinking that that Valeno recency bias uh, of the 100-point season last year in the queue, which should be stated, the queue is the weakest of the three uh, Canadian Hockey League um, developmental leagues. It is 
by far the highest scoring. So when you're comparing point totals across the two leagues or across the three leagues, you shouldn't necessarily say Q points are going to translate to the OHL or going to translate to the WHL. Rasmussen didn't play in the in the QMJHL. He played in the WHL with Tri City. So, um, you know his pro, his pre draft totals don't necessarily look as impe- impressive. Um, all that being said, I, I just think Valeno's got that edge from his overall game. But time will only tell us to which of those two guys um, you know emerges. And for the Red Wings' sake, they're hoping both guys outperform that projection. Yeah, they are. And I, I'm not going to say that I don't think Valeno's going to score more, but I, I just think that Rasmussen has, has his elements too. And I, you know, I think it, I, I honestly am kind of interested because in in a in a world where the Red Wings build a contender, I do think they need another one C caliber guy for that second line or the first line in whichever order. And then I'm curious because I don't think either of them are going to end up as fourth liners necessarily. So I'm curious, are, are they willing to move one of them uh, outside to wing again? It seems like they pretty committed to both of them at center uh maybe they both end up at center and they're kind of the, the the two centers there but i'm curious to see how it works out for both of these guys um I, you know i don't know that i would say Rasmussen as a, as a huge offensive ceiling or anything like that you know one guy who's come to mind in the past when i've thought about it is kind of a brian boyle but i think he can maybe score a little bit more than brian boyle um maybe not a ton more though i think boyle was usually around in, in the 20 to 30 range i think rasmussen could probably be the 25 to 35 range consistently but didn't he already have a 20 point season last year as a 19 year old i mean can can he get to that 40 point season yeah i mean i think that's probably where i'd peg his his ceiling at for me is is uh what you're hoping for is he's a 20 goal 35 to 40 point player with probably half his his points coming on the power play for me if i'm if i'm guessing between the two as to who ends up at center because i do think they're going to have the flex one out to wing i think the speed of the nhl game is going to prevent rasmussen mm-hmm. from playing down the middle i think he's going to end up on the wing and he's going to be able to use his size a little bit more he's going to be able to use it more in the corners um when he's on the board battles i i don't know that he's going to be able to keep up with the speed given particularly if Blashville is his coach, some of the responsibilities that he's looking for um, from his center, I don't know that he's going to be able to play that way. Yeah, that might be true. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not saying that I think the skating is uh, is necessarily all that good. So I, it, it could very well be the case. He's also just a big guy, though, so maybe he can overcompensate some of it with just flat-out length. You know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, reach. Right. Yeah, I mean, Mario Lemieux knew how to, although Lemieux was a lot faster than... He's than not Mario Madison. Lemieux, though. <laughs> <laughs> He is not Mario Lemieux. Don't quote us on that one. Uh, okay, here's a good one. Uh, I'm just going to take the second half of, of this one. It's from Detroit Spartan, because we've talked about the first one with Blashel quite a bit. Um, but he, the second question, I think, is a very interesting talking point. It says, what are the top three moves Iserman may make to jumpstart this rebuild? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I think the number one most important move he can make is to hit a home run on his first-round draft pick this year. Um, with the level of talent that's in the top four picks and with Detroit all but assured of picking in the top four and likely at four, um, it's going to be very important to hit a home run on this pick because Detroit cannot afford to miss on top five picks. Uh, one of the cardinal sins for these rebuilding teams uh, that have to spend a number of years in, in the draft lottery is if you miss on a on a top pick, one of your top five picks, you are going to be in purgatory for a a little while longer. And so you want to be a team like the Leafs that's able to hit on on Nylander, Marner, and Matthews. You want to be a team like Carolina that makes the right decision and and hits Andrei Svechnikov 
um, early, you want to make sure you're you're not making mistakes. You're not, you know, making the Jesse Pooley RV, which again at the time he was the consensus player to take. Um, you don't want to have the nail Yakupovs, um, the the Pooley RVs that Edmonton's had to deal with in in their attempt to rebuild. So the no- most important thing for me is you have to hit a home run on that pick. The second most important thing is you have to get good contracts for Tyler Bertuzzi and Anthony Mantha. And then the third most important thing I think he can do this offseason is get something in return uh, that is valuable for Andreas Athanasiu. Uh, my personal belief, like I said on the last episode, is I think you keep Athanasiu to the end of the season to allow him to build up some of that trade value back to make sure you are getting max value for him, given that he's in an all-time awful season right now. Um, you know, even if it comes to where you, you sign him for a year and see if you can move him at that point, if he has a hot start to the season, I think you have to get something big in return for him, whether that's a first round pick or a potential future goalie or a potential top tier prospect. Uh, he's the guy I think, uh, you should be able to move and get something valuable in return. Yeah, very good answers. I, I think that he's one of them. I could also see it being Robbie Fabry. We've talked about the, the similarities uh, in their statistical profiles between Fabry and Athanasiu, and since Fabry's stock is a bit higher, if he's a guy that could bring you a first, I, I think you'd have to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, he's a couple years younger. He's also probably not going to get as big of a pay hike as, as yeah. Athanasiu, given that he's not coming off a $900,000 contract versus Athanasiu coming off $3 million. Fabry's 23, Athanasiu's 25. So, you know, you may get something more. At the same time, you may also say, hey, Fabry's 23. Maybe if he stays yeah. in my system one year longer, maybe he can round out some of that defensive deficiencies that he's demonstrated. Whereas Athanasiu, I think, pretty clearly is going to be the player that he is. He's going to be that big boomer bust guy. He's going to be the guy who could get you 30, 35 goals in the right system, but you got to protect him defensively so, so much. And Detroit's really not the place for him to be able to maximize his game. Yep. I think the only other thing is, is, is knowing when to, to make that swing in free agency. I know generally, Prashant, you, you've been uh, hesitant to, to say that most free agency moves are, are, are good or are effective, and I, I agree with that. I think most are not. Uh, but I think at some point you got to find the one that's really going to help you. Um, I don't know if it's this summer. I, I, coming into this year, I thought maybe this summer would have been a natural time to do something like that. But I do think at some point you got to know when to actually be comfortable giving out uh, some terms and some money in free agency. Not many of those deals, but I think there's probably one out there that uh, that could help at some point. I think it's it's knowing when is the right time to give that deal. Yeah, I'm going to just be full of quotables for this podcast <laughs> episode. And so for my philosophy on that is if you have to ask, then you're not ready to make that move yep, yet. That's fair. You, you're going to know exactly when it's time to accelerate that rebuild. And if you have to ask yourself, is now the right time? You're probably not in the right spot to do that. Is that from How I Met Your Mother too? I have no idea where that's from. I probably heard it somewhere and it's stored in my brain. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next question is from Dan. He says, who on this current roster actually drives play besides Anthony Mantha? That's a, that's a tough question to answer. We've talked a lot about Dylan Larkin yep. and obviously the two of them have been excellent, excellent play drivers. Tyler Bertuzzi actually over the course of the season has slowly developed into a guy who's looking like he's driving even strength offense to a certain extent. Um, so he's potentially a third guy in that wheel. And then the fourth guy, as you and I have talked about on recent episodes, is Philip Zadina and how he's grading out. We still have a very small sample size 
uh, on Zadina to really know how he's going to shake out. We're still looking at, you know, 30 NHL games uh, right now to see how he's going to eventually grade, but so, so far so good. He is looking like a guy who could potentially push the needle a little bit in the offensive zone without giving up a whole lot in the defensive zone, which was the fear after last season where he kind of had a, a disastrous uh, handful of games in Detroit where he wasn't able to make any sort of impact at 5-on-5. Five five. I think it's the script has certainly flipped this year, and he's making a substantial impact at 5-on-5 five five in a very difficult situation. So I'd say right now you have those four guys. Defensively, though, I don't think you have really a single guy that is truly driving offense in the way that you want, um, per se. You know, if you look at the guys like John Carlson, uh, Eric Carlson, and you look at around the league at, you know, the Dougie Hamiltons, the Jacob Slavens, the, those guys, I don't think you have any one of those in Detroit right now. Philip Ronick's probably your best bet, but if you look at him, uh, he doesn't necessarily grade out super well at even strength. He's probably close to, to kind of net even, if you will. Um, so that is one of the bigger needs. Uh, I think Moritz Sider could potentially be that player. Um, there's a great clip of him from the Griffins game on Saturday, if you haven't seen him, where he basically uh, he's skating circles around the moose. And then on his goal, like we talked about, uh, great instincts to jump into the play. I think he's shown more and more capacity to do that. So potentially he's that guy. But right now I don't think there's anybody in the back end. So I'm kind of limiting it to Larkin, Mantha, uh, Bertuzzi, and then potentially Zadina. Yep, I think that's fair. And I think as Zadina continues to to get savvier and stronger, um, I do think he will eventually be a play driver, even if it's right now kind of more um, projecting. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy that just turned 20, right? Yeah. He, he, he turned 20 in, I think it was November, if End I of November. correctly. Yep. So, you know, this is a guy who still has several, probably a solid three to four years of getting better each year. So, uh, there's a lot more to expect from him. Yep, absolutely. I think that's all we got for that. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with the schedule this week? Obviously, games against the Islanders and the Penguins, uh, no easy task. Yeah, I mean, number one, I don't know how the Islanders continue to win. I mean, the last two years, they just blow everybody away from projections. You look at the roster, you look at what they got going on, and you go, this is a team that just simply – should not end up with more than 90 points. And then they, they go out and, and they're so difficult to play against, so difficult to beat. It just speaks volumes about how good of a coach Barry Trotz is. And then the Penguins, I mean, right there, uh, you know, you got Mike Sullivan doing an unreal job in, in Pittsburgh right now. They've been without Crosby for a long period of time. They were without Malkin for a long period of time. But somehow, some way, they just have guys scoring for them and they're getting amazing goaltending from Tristan Jari. So, Hey, I mean, kudos to, to them as well, but neither of those teams are going to be particularly easy for Detroit, uh, even more so if Jonathan Bernier is out. Here's the sales pitch for the Islanders game that Fox Sports Detroit will never tell you. If everything goes the Red Wings game, everything goes the Red Wings way, it'll be the ugliest game you watch all year. If nothing goes the Red Wings way, it'll be the ugliest game you watch all year. Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say because if everything goes the Wings way, this is going to look like a trap, ugly kind of defensive neutral zone mess but if things don't go detroit's way this could be eight to one yep yep exactly 
I think that's all we got for this week. We'll be back at it in the middle of the week, though, as always. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you want to get our midweek episode and all of my my writing, all my coworkers writing in The Athletic Detroit and across The Athletic Network, uh, you can subscribe on TheAthletic.com. I believe we still have that promo code, uh, TheAthletic.com slash Wings for Breakfast. 